Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. This is the homeschool edition, which will be the edition we're doing, I guess, for the rest of the year. I'm fine. Thanks for asking. And I'm delighted to have Carrie Budaf-Brown, who is the editor of Politico. Hi, Carrie. Hi, Peter. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining me. I don't know how you have time to talk to me. There's an election. There's a pandemic. There's a Supreme Court fight. What else am I missing? That's, that's it for today, right? Yeah, that's just it for today. We'll see where the day takes us and the week. I've known you a little bit for a while, and um, this is something we've tried to do for a while, so thank you for coming on. We had John Harris, uh, who was one of the co-founders of Politico on a while back, and he sort of explained the general idea of Politico and the history. I want to talk briefly about your history. You are a longtime Politico person who took over the site in 2016. Were you there from the beginning? Yeah, I was one of the original hires by the team of co-founders. I was at the Philadelphia Inquirer, just covering state politics and read about Politico starting and just, you know, sent them an application out of the blue. And you never left? I never left. No. Yeah. It's, it's kind of, it is hard to believe in a lot of ways <laughs> that it's been 14 years. Um, I was a reporter for about eight of them. I, about 2015, I did go to Europe. So I sort of had this break from like the Washington Politico. I started our Europe operation. Um, so I kind of had this two year distance from the U.S. political side of it and and came back, as you said, in 2016. So I want to talk more about the history of Politico in a little while, but let's just jump to present day. Who is a political reader today in 2020? You've got a, you've got a paid subscription model. You've got a lot of free content available on the web. You guys are, are a big presence on Twitter. So I know there is not one answer, but who is a political reader today? Yeah, so the way we think about it is that we, we are very focused on who our core reader is. And that, generally speaking, is our individuals who have a professional or personal interest in uh, government politics and policymaking. Now, that universe has grown substantially, right, in the last five years. But we attempt to stay true to what is our core and that there are uh, networks of individuals in power centers in Washington, Sacramento, Brussels, and all over this country that uh, need trustworthy inside uh, the room, um, you know, behind the scenes reporting on, you know, what big decision makers are doing, thinking, saying, and how they're influencing, you know, how the government works. And that there is a, a very solid core of individuals who need that information and will pay for it. 
you know, uh, to get our reporting and intelligence. And we start there. What is a story that this group of individuals would want? And then we assume because if we deliver on that core value proposition, that there's a lot of other millions and millions of people who will want to read it as well. And that theory, which was the original theory starting in 2007, it's what drove us to expand into some key capitals across the country and what led us to Europe to start in Brussels. Um, you know, it was the same theory that we applied there. And it's the same core organizing principle that drives our newsroom today. You know, so that answers the question about audience, but also how we organize and think about ourselves in this world where, you know, we do have so many competitors and people doing things and in ways that we pioneered years ago. So there's the way I think about sort of all of these sort of professional subscription business models, and there are a bunch of them now, and, and the Wall Street Journal has always had one, uh-huh. uh, right? You've got people who are paying to be inside the room. It's their job. Maybe their job is paying for them to be in the room. Yep. And that's a relatively small group. Uh-huh. And then there's a larger group of people who are interested in what's going on in the room and they're maybe they're walking by it or their face is pressed up okay. against the glass, but it's not they're they're not gonna pay to see inside and they don't need to be there. Is that a rough analogy? I think that is. Uh, it is roughly that it that is what it is, yes. Um and I mean I think there are a lot of people who can't get inside the room but still have a strong professional incentive to understand what's going on inside of there and will pay us. Uh, to get, you know, the information that we can find out because we invest in individuals who will, you know, run through walls to get that. So, and one of the reasons this is interesting, to it's always interesting to me, but in 2020, you look at the landscape and what is literally being discussed today. There's an Atlantic piece out saying today that Donald Trump may, uh, listing all the different ways that Donald Trump may try to invalidate the election. It's, it's terrifying. There is, I think, increasingly... A conventional wisdom that news has become more partisan and news organizations are more partisan and that certainly people who consume the news have sort of more defined partisan ideas. And so the New York Times reader is different than a Breitbart reader, to be really gross about mm-hmm. it. But you could also argue that what is going on within the Trump administration and his version of the Republican Party is unprecedented and the norms they're destroying sort of, there just isn't a... a We've never seen anything like this before. And simply by describing that accurately, you'll be accused of taking on a partisan uh, viewpoint. You guys have a business model where you, by definition, which we just explained, have to appeal to people across the spectrum, right? There are people within the Trump administration that you want to be subscribers of Politico and paying attention. And, And we can expand that metaphor all the way down the line. So... I'm wondering sort of what kind of tension that creates for you guys internally, where if you do a one, both sides version of a story, you probably aren't covering it accurately. Mm -hmm. But if you don't do that, you're going to offend some portion of your audience. So it's a Mm long-winded way of saying, how do you handle that? You know, um, all those outcomes have happened, right? Like, I would say I'd maybe take the the question to a slightly higher level and, and just give you a sense of the instructions and sort of what I tell the newsroom, which is, you know, we have a fact-based approach to what we do. And sometimes the facts are more welcomed by one side or the other, but we approach things uh, in a way that, uh, you know, we lean on our reporting and what our sources have told us. And we, you know, go with that. And, 
we don't have a point of view. You're right. Like as an institution, we don't have an editorial board. Um, we are very proud of our nonpartisan, as we say, the nonpartisan orientation of our business. And, you know, I think you would find on any given day, and I see it on my Twitter feed all day long, <laughs> you know, criticism from both sides, depending on the story. Uh, you know, there's obviously stories right now that I'm getting hit on from the right. There's stories right now we're getting hit on from the left. They're both saying we're a left-wing rag or we're a right-wing rag, mm -hmm. right? Like, that happens. And all I can say is that I stand behind journalism that I believe is the best version of what my reporters can get at any given moment and tell it in a way that uh, is true to what they found out. So just to push you a little bit, uh -huh. that answer would have been an answer that you would have told me at any time in, in Politico's history, right? Um, mm -hmm. Certainly would have been an answer you would have given me in 2015. But 2016 on, we're, we're, where things are moving way beyond the pale, and I don't need to enumerate them here. Okay. Everyone listening to this understands what's going on. Um, it seems like saying, well, we're, we're being criticized by both sides. That sort of implies that we're doing a good job. It seems like a hard argument to maintain over the last four years, certainly right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I obviously I, I hear you, Peter. This is something I spend a lot of time thinking about and trying to communicate in a way that takes into account exactly what you're saying. There is a reality of what is happening today, and there is in no way like you can look at our site at any given day and and not see that we're not leaning into uh, calling out claims by the president that are not based in fact or truth. We have it headlines throughout stories. Um, I think what I'm saying is that there's also some sort of habits of journalism that I try to not have us lean into, um, you know, excessive use of adjectives, you know, really testing assumptions of what we're all seeing. If you do see something that counters the narrative, lean into that, you know, that's a good story when we're not, when we're going one way and everybody else is going the other way. I am as, a, as conscious as you are about the moment that we're in and what journalism at Politico, how, how that is reflected in our journalism. I believe that there is still a place where we are covering government, we are covering political figures and policy maneuvers, and you know we, we do call balls and strikes. Um, we do say you know what is true and what's not. Um, it may not be in the style of some of our competitors, but I feel uh, confident about where we are and I can sleep at night in terms of what we are doing here at Politico, taking into account everything that you say there about what the world that I am speaking of. I'd like to believe that there is a place where journalism can be produced and have credibility to uh, 60 to 70 percent of this country. Now, I'm well aware that that almost that that ability to say that there's 60 percent of the country that can agree on a set of facts. Like, I do worry that is shrinking, right? But I, I believe that the style of journalism that we practice here is essential for you know, being able to communicate with people who aren't just of one persuasion. So tying this back to your business, right? Like there's a long, okay. there's a lot of discussion at the New York Times and around the New York Times about can they afford to have conservative voices on their opinion okay. page? Because the assumption is their readers who are now their subscribers, who are now the key to their revenue, want a certain worldview. And so if you okay. have a pro-Trump voice there, they'll get upset. And there's all sorts of versions of that story that we've seen play out. 
does the perception of bias or not bias or, or, or not being advocate, a strong enough advocate for a point of view, how has it affected your business in the last four years? Like I would say our business, if you just sort of ask a, a, a question about our business, right? Like our business is grown exponentially in the past, you know, four years. The, I believe because of the journalism that we've stuck to, which is aggressive, fact-based, accountability-driven journalism about what government is or is not doing and producing journalism that is indispensable to people who will pay a lot of money to get it. So how have we grown our business by leaps and bounds? It's because of staying true to what our core mission is, the values of journalism that we hold dear, which I just described to you, and that we've maintained that credibility somehow without doing both sidism and this on one hand on another type of journalism, we've actually leaned into what we know produces good stories and that people are willing to pay for it. So how has it changed it? Um, you know, I guess I would say the noise is louder. You know, I, I, it's definitely noisier. It's definitely more emotionally draining to do this job in this environment. But when in those early days in particular of like the Trump administration, when everything seemed like, you know, you're, you know, I had reporters in my office day after day. I covered the White House for, for six years. Reporters who have never covered the White House and now they're covering the White House under this president and they don't, it's hard to comprehend what's happening. I mean, I would just say to them that, you know, you just have to lean into our reporting and report it as we see it. And you know, even if there is this sort of heightened tension that exists around what we do, you just have to do your jobs and you'll be here and political will be here longer than, you know, anybody in office, which is the truth. What moves the needle for you guys as a business? Is it uh, a story like you guys had a great story a couple of weeks ago? We've already forgotten it now about uh, <laughs> a, a, a Trump aide uh, messing with CDC reports, you know, yeah. astonishing okay. In a normal time, that would be the story of the year. Here, it's literally a, a one-day story, maybe a two-day story. But that mm -hmm. that popped on my radar. I'm not a Politico subscriber. Everyone's sort of covering okay. that story. Is that meaningful? Does that bring in subscribers? Um, or is it coverage of a subcommittee hearing that I'm never going to see because I'm not a Politico subscriber and it's relevant to a 1,000 people, but five more of them found it and they pay you for a sub? What changes your business? I mean, I, I think both of them do. We view those two things as like, you know, two sides of the same coin. That's why we have this strong subscription service that we don't think would be as strong as it would be unless we have this high profile free site where we can um, have a huge amount of reach with what we do. If we just had a free site, uh, we wouldn't have the depth of knowledge that we get from investing in reporters for the subscription service. And our subscription service, you should know, it's we have more than 125 journalists who are spread across, uh, you know, a dozen or more teams that are focused on key parts of our, you know, economy, a healthcare team of 15 people, roughly, who are assigned to deeply wire agencies that a lot of people have no idea exists. And because we invest in them going deep for our subscribers and getting the scoop on the paper that's going to come out, that's going to, or a regulation that's going to change the way a whole sector of the economy operates by getting that information first, by investing in individuals who care about that, we will then surface information that leads to the story you're describing, which is 
uh, finding out that a key aide to, you know, Alex Azar, the HHS secretary, uh, along with folks that he hired, were putting an enormous amount of pressure on the CDC to not release information that did not comport with the president's messages. We broke that story. Nobody else did. And why did we break that story on top of a string of stories that have taken down cabinet officials? The last We brought down the last CDC director. That was our reporting two and a half years ago that led to Redfield being signed. It's because we reported deeply on her. She resigned the next day. We can only do that. And I believe we stand out in this crowded media environment for the impact that we've had investing in individuals who are wired into these agencies. They break news, the micro scoops that our paying customers need. And then we provide the editing talent and support and oversight to lift them up out of those verticals to provide hugely impactful reporting that our competitors at the Post and the Times and the Journal have not done. It's because they're not set up the way we are. And when we have a setup like this where we can go deep and lift up and have amazing impact, taking down cabinet secretaries, changing policies, opening investigations, and like we did with the CDC story, I believe our string of reporting on Mike Caputo or Seema Verma was another one of our uh, you know, stories where we invested. Seema Verma, the head of uh, the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare, our reporters on their own through one tip to one reporter learned that the head of that agency was spending money, massive amounts of money on outside consultants. He only got that because that's his source base. And we started on that 18 months ago, continued to report the hell out of it. It ended with a congressional investigation where the investigators told one of my reporters they had a hard time turning up information that we had not already put out into the world. And like these are big, important stories that we that I believe are our distinctive value proposition in this at this time. And to get back to your original question, that helps in solidifying our position as a trusted source of information for professionals who will pay thousands of dollars for it. And then we get the added benefit of bringing that onto a free site, having that travel across multiple platforms, and then we can amplify it in a way that, you know, has us as a player in, you know, the biggest stories of our time. And we are set up uniquely to do that. And that's why we've had that success over the last four years um, is because of that twin model. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. And we're back with Carrie Budoff-Brown. 
we keep talking about your competitors and, and you, you laid out three of them. I, I think it's worth pointing out, it's astonishing how much attention there is on, on DC over the last four years. Okay. I mean, it's not surprising given given what's going on in DC, but right, the Post Journal, the Times, which is stocked with former Politico reporters. Um, on one end, you've got all kinds of folks who are sort of in the aggregation business, like The Hill. Um, you've got Axios, which is also stocked, um, as we all know, with former Politico people. Um, and I assume there are many more I'm not even following. Mm -hmm. But you've been doing this for a long time. Has Have you ever seen this sort of concentration of media attention on Washington before? No, I mean, it's always felt intense. You know, I mean, I covered, like I said, I covered the White House. It felt competitive then. But you were right. There is nothing that compares to this moment at all. The And I saw the difference when I went to Brussels and set up a Politico there. And like, it is just like free reign to do what we do in Washington there. And it's so fun there because nobody does it. It's like so uncrowded. And it was a great experience because you could just run wild and no one was competing with you. Why do you think that is? It's not as if people in Europe aren't interested in news. People have always been intimidated by Brussels. It's boring. Others have tried it and failed. That's what they said about us when we went there. I honestly think it's because we brought a business model there that we tested in another place that was ultra competitive and we just figured it out. Like I, I, it was very easy to go in there and like eat the lunch of the FT, the journal and everybody else. It's also because we invested in it too. There's power in numbers. And, and when you hire the right people to do what you know, people want to read. And I think it took a little bit of like the Americans matching up with the Germans because it's a joint venture with Axel Springer. you like, there was a lot there that just worked, but you know, I love that we remain a dominant force there, and I believe we will be for a very long time. Here is just different. Like, I came back here in 2016. I was out of the country for most of the 2016 election in its entirety. I came back like I thought everyone had, like, lost their minds here. Like, I was so shocked at what I saw. In terms of <laughs> to be the mass of people looking for stories, looking for the same story. The mass of people looking for stories also, like, like I looked on Twitter, I think particularly in late 2016 and was just like, wow, what happened to journalists? Like everybody is expressing so much of their own personal views as they report on mm -hmm. this. And I know that I just sort of opened like a can of worms there, maybe. Mm -hmm. Like this has obviously been a really tough thing for newsrooms to look at in the last four years. But I I just sort of like, it was just like in a changed environment. I think my point is like, I came yeah. back after two years of being gone and just saw this like huge, you know, what Trump had done in those two years to sort of turbocharge the media environment was insane. So I walked into that and that first year was like a blurb. I hired what I believe was like the best White House team in town. And because I hired the best White House team in town, it became this rush to take, you know, to, to snatch up those people. And to your point, like, I have almost every like leading politics reporter in this country, whether it's these print competitors or the networks, like they have literally all come through Politico. Mm -hmm. You know, no one has that kind of track record that we've had to identify and produce talent and then have them, you know, move on. A lot of them are still here, but like that says something about the newsroom that, you know, Jim Vandehei and John Harris created 14 years ago, and that I now leave. There is the flip side of that, right? The uncomfortable part of if you are able to find, cultivate, develop uh -huh. great journalistic talent, and then there is a consistent record of other organizations with more money and clout hiring them away, that has to be politely frustrating for uh -huh. you and your coworkers. 
Absolutely. And, you know, there are, for as, there are as many cases where people have left that we've been able to fight to keep them and push back on those offers from some of our biggest competitors. It's a case by case basis. Um, and, uh, for sure. I mean, I can look at it one way, hugely frustrating on some days on other days. Uh, you know, it's a hugely valuable thing as I try to recruit in and identify what will be the next generation of young stars or just stars in general. Like, right. You come to Politico, we're not saying you're going to leave in four years, but by the way, in four years, you could end up doing something else. I mean, yeah, I mean, I just, you come here, I give you this platform, we provide you the support, and I can probably say with great certainty what you'll be able to do by being in my newsroom. Mm -hmm. And I take great pride in that. And it's my job to like keep them here. And we do win that. We also, you know, as is normal, have churn. Yeah. Um, and it's, I, I think it's pretty common in, in political reporting, particularly, right? And sort of the assumption is after the 2020 elections, there'll be a bunch of reporters playing musical chairs absolutely. going from one org to another. Yep, yep. One competitor we haven't mentioned, but they're, they're sort of very of the moment right now is, is Substack. I don't think we can say Substack as a competitor. And I don't know, I think Judd Legum, um, I mm-hmm. had him on this yeah. show before, is sort of the most high-profile political person uh-huh. uh, with a sub stack, but it's certainly, they, they have some at least um, perceived momentum. My colleague Casey Newton this morning from The Verge mm-hmm. just announced that he's leaving or sort of leaving to, to form of sub stack. Exactly. Um, exactly. So, and for anyone who's listening who hasn't paid attention, Substack is the idea that they it's a it's a collection of newsletters, um, and um, they're offering some degree of stipend for some of their more high profile writers they're recruiting. But the idea is you're going to sell a, a newsletter through Substack. If it goes well, you'll keep most of the money. Does that idea of sort of the solo practitioner selling a newsletter? How does that work in 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 politics? Mm-hmm. It seems like there should be a world for that. I think so. I mean, I, I subscribe to Judd's newsletter, mm-hmm. a paying subscriber, by the way. I haven't, you know, encountered it much yet in terms of having an impact on sort of my my sort of daily way they're not, of doing They're not thing. knocking on your reporters' inboxes saying, hey, I want to set you up? Not that I'm aware of. Uh-huh. <laughs> I wonder <laughs> if point. they've concluded that there's just too much competition and that they don't want to go there yet. Maybe I don't know. I mean, but I I, I think you're on to something. I, I think that there's definitely that opportunity. The newsletter itself, you know, it, it's such. It's like maybe two or three years ago, I was like, oh, I don't want any more newsletters. Like, there's so many newsletters, but they continue to persist as like this really valuable form of communicating with an audience, creating a network, uh, getting out information. Like, in fact, like I've swung back. Like newsletters are just pretty damn good as a tool for us, right? To and do you, what I mean, I mean, Playbook is sort of not the original newsletter, right? But like one of the most prominent, successful newsletters Absolutely. for a long time. That was sort of, I think, what people thought of Politico as was Mike Allen's Playbook. Exactly, and and we've built a whole you know thriving business off that notion. Now we're far more than a newsletter business, um, but. It is, it's just effective. So I haven't had Substack sort of, you know, be- become an issue in my life. I imagine I will, given the nature of what we do. And, um, you know, but that's, again, just one more data point or element that I deal with right now in this environment that's incredibly competitive in every sense. Everybody is my competitor. Um, and and how I sort of manage to keep my sanity is by trusting that if we can stick 
true to our core mission and organize properly and hire properly around that and then move aggressively to evolve as times change that is built into the dna of this publication that you know we're going to be okay and we're going to be more than okay but that's at least how i maintain my sanity on days where like i have yet another competitor in the space another person who wants to hire one of my people um i have enough confidence 4 years into this job that I've been through most of these things already. It's exhausting, right? I, I, I'm, oh, I'm tired yeah. talking to you. Not because of that, but it, <laughs> it, it, I can feel the weight. Yeah. Speaking of, of exhausting, I do want to talk a little bit about how Politico has changed and hasn't changed. I remember when it started up, um, the idea mm-hmm. was they were going to create this sort of, the, the, again, there was plenty of coverage of Washington at the time, but the pitch was we're making sort of an internet speed version of mm-hmm. of DC coverage. And the idea was you've got a swarm of, of youngish reporters out with Blackberries tapping away. And every time someone utters something, that is a news oh. item and should go out. And from the outside, mm-hmm. it seemed sort of cartoonishly implausible. And I get the impression that that is less of the case now, right? That you guys are not sort of moment to moment. And is that because that's not sustainable to do or because there's no market for it or because Twitter took that away? How and why did that change? Yeah, I mean, we rose or we started roughly at the same time Twitter was, you know, taking off. You know, I was covering the 2008 presidential campaign and signed up for Twitter when we heard that Obama would say who his vice presidential candidate was over Twitter. I think that was what it was. And so we rose as sort of like a Twitter at the same time. We, we did the same thing that Twitter was doing, which is like, you know, microscope, just like get it out. And then Twitter, you know, obviously became the place and we didn't want to compete with Twitter in that way. And we had to evolve as a publication. So you intentionally said, we're going to do something that Twitter isn't doing. And the stuff that we were doing initially is not going to work long term. That's exactly right. Sort of examining that what worked in those early couple of years, we needed to evolve beyond that. And I think that's been the beauty of Politico is recognizing when the tricks that we had needed to be updated for a new era. And we've done that continually. Like we've reinvented or created new opportunities for ourselves to stay ahead of where our competitors are. And I think to deal with what you are raising here about that sort of you know, no scoop too small, uh, hyperspeed, uh, we couldn't compete with Twitter. You know, that wasn't going to be where we were going to succeed. It worked for a period of time. And then we had to build out just other muscles, long form muscles, you know, with magazine writing and editing and a higher level of editing uh, talent. We started our, our policy subscription business a few years in. That was our sort of first evolution Going to the States was another evolution, creating a magazine and and bringing in that style of editing and writing that allowed us to sort of get a layer of journalists interested in working for us and audience reading us. And then expanding into Europe and just sort of a bigger global expansion uh, from there. And so, and now we're trying, you know, we're looking at evolving just our, our product set and the kinds of the way we think about our original conception of power centers used to be physical locations or agencies or departments. Now we see opportunity in networking, you know, like-minded professionals. And I mean, like-minded as an ideology, but let's say like cyber professionals uh, and, and finding other ways to connect people 
uh, and, you know, layer on communities and build products specifically to serve them. As an aside, I, I thought that the fact that you, you mentioned something in passing there was great because people don't generally want to say that out loud. But you talked about creating part of your business as a way of attracting journalists. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Like you, you sort of get that if you're an NBA team, you want a really nice locker room and planes because that'll help you bring the best free agents in. But the idea of, of making a product that will appeal to people mm-hmm. who will work there as opposed to the readers, it's not it's not an opposition. Right. But it's, it's something you do yeah. is interesting. Um, you, but you talked about networking. And okay. um, so that leads me to this obvious question. You guys, um, like many other people, have, have had a conference business, uh, mm-hmm. gathering people in physical space, getting people to pay money to be there, getting sponsors to pay money to make that happen. That can't happen right now. How do you see your events and sort of live business does it reconstitute when there is a fully distributed vaccine or is there a permanent change? Yeah, I mean, I think that's up in the air. I think we all think that there will be a time when people will want to gather in the same space and see each other in person and network. Like that is the value of those live events. That's what people are paying for to be there. That's why sponsors want to align themselves around it. The benefit, of course, is we produce, you know, compelling conversations uh, and good journalism. But for now, you know, our live our live business, like most others, it's evolved into virtual uh, offerings that is just not the same as it was before. We've had to account for the loss of that revenue. Right. To, yeah. To be this. to be clear, right? It's less appealing for an audience. It's definitely less appealing for a sponsor. And in terms yeah. of overall revenue, I mean, at Vox yeah. Media, it's it's certainly a dramatic hit. I assume it's the same for you guys. Yeah. We did not have an events business as large as what you have at at Vox or at the Atlantic. Like you know, it's so. We've been able to absorb the loss there, mm-hmm. and we're not planning on any, we're not setting up any events at any point that are in person for next year, you know, or even the back half of next year. I think we're just, you know, we're, we're not going to go back to that place right now until it, a vaccine is readily available. Like, that's pretty clear. We're going to experiment as we have been with these virtual offerings and continue to evolve what we can do there. We see it as a good opportunity to experiment. It's not going to be the moneymaker that it was before, but it provides what it has done is given the newsroom freedom, frankly, to drive more of the conversations. As you know, with uh, the events business, often you want to get uh, an underwriter for a concept and, you know, there's no interference on what, uh, you know, the newsroom wants to do, but often like the newsroom wants to do pretty like, you know, edgy conversations and the ability to sort of find underwriters for the edgier conversations is often challenging. So um, we tend to sort of veer into policy conversations. You know what I mean? Like policy really sells no matter what. Edgier conversations around race, around, you know, Donald Trump, uh, even a Donald Trump interview, you know, there's uh, to get underwriting for some of those events is just more challenging. Yeah, I mean, not to get too inside, but it, the the yeah. the Vox or the Recode slash All Things D model for a long time was always sort of yeah. audience based. So, what does the audience uh-huh. want to pay for? Which has its uh-huh. own, you know, pluses and minuses. Sponsors were sort of secondary. Um, uh-huh. Anyway, that's that's behind the curtain there. Um, let's, I, I want to finish up by talking about the pandemic and, and how you operate a newsroom. Um, I'm actually just finishing a story about what it's like to cover uh, the 2020 campaign when so much of it until just now has been virtual. How have you guys adapted to that? I've, I talked to one of your reporters, uh, Alex Thompson, who's said, you know, normally I'd be in Milwaukee, you know, knocking on doors and now I'm in my apartment yep. trying to reach people in Milwaukee. How are you How are you grappling with a kind of virtual campaign? 
Yeah. So one thing I did very purposefully uh, about three years ago when I was thinking about what I I do think in four-year increments or two-year election cycles, and I try to set up my teams and hire with that in mind. So about three years ago, when I was looking ahead to 2020 and creating a politics team, um, I made a conscious decision to place half of my national politics reporters outside of Washington and base them in the states. We already had a strong state operation particularly in Florida, you know, the uh, Northeast, California, but I strategically place people elsewhere. I have uh, a reporter based in Pennsylvania who I picked up out of the Philadelphia Daily News who is reporting extensively on what's happening in Pennsylvania. I have great reporters in Florida. I have Tim Alberta in Michigan, Natasha Karecki based in Illinois. But they're, they're, very, they're not, uh, they're not, these reporters you have scattered throughout the country are not tasked with covering Pennsylvania politics, right? It's you're covering national no, politics. You're based in Pennsylvania intentionally. Yes. Yes. But the point is, is that I, I have hired these individuals because they have deep connections within the state political structures Mm -hmm. that allow them to remain tapped into what is happening on the ground, living there, talking to the sources, and then finding the right stories to tell to a national audience about what is happening in those states. So I did that as a way to do something different than the way the media covered the national campaign of 2016. I figured that would be my safety net of sorts. I have people out in the country able to go, uh, they live in these places and maybe they can go easily into other, you know, places that are key. I'm going to pause you for just one second because there was this whole post-2016, we missed the story, we didn't understand what was happening in Michigan. What we're going to do is we're going to send our New York or Washington, D.C.-based reporter out there into the heartland, I always say with the pith helmet and the safari jacket, to get the real story, and then they would come back. And you instead said, no, no, we're hiring people who are there, and they're just going to stay where they are and tell us the same story. exactly. I have multiple examples of us surfacing uh, what is going on in these states that will have an impact on what happens nationally. So I say all that by saying I had already sort of prepared for a moment where, you know, I wanted to do things differently with how we cover this campaign. And now that we're in a pandemic and people literally can't travel, I have reporters (laughs) in the key states where this election will be decided writing stories that our national competitors are not doing or we will surface it before then them. And then I further, you know, organize them in these final two months around these swing states. This is not a national campaign. This is a state by state swing state campaign. And I have reporters assigned to eight to 10 of the states where this will be decided. And they are reporting on them day in and day out. Some of them live there. Most of them live there. Uh, I think two or three are just connected in there through some other, you know, way. And then we're, we're sort of organizing our reporting force with that in mind because we have lacked the, you know, the ability to go out and go and you know, travel with the candidates to the degree that we want. We have to compensate for that. Uh, this is my answer so far. Now, is it sufficient? I don't know. But I know that we're doing something differently than our competitors have. And I am pretty happy with how uh, you know, we are set up so far. I still live in fear you know, of us missing something, it looking really clear in retrospect. And all I can say at the end of the day is like, what did I do to try to account for this new environment? And I think about that every damn day and hope that at the end, 
you know, we got it right. Is there a version where, look, the fact that Joe Biden is is not doing a lot of campaigns and so there isn't a need to have someone travel with him and say, this is what he said in Milwaukee, which, by the way, you could have seen on TV or Twitter anyway. Yep. Is there a version that says, actually, it's better for us to not spend time and money <laughs> and resources on that kind of travel when we could be doing other stuff? And yes, ideally, we would leave our house. But there is not a traditional campaign, mm -hmm. and we're forced to not cover that traditional campaign where we're going to end up with a better end product. Yep, absolutely. They're, you know, doing five events in one day, um, traveling around in a bubble, you know, that's good for sort of being able to cover a candidate and know the people around him or her. But you do lose something from being so wedded to what is, you know, event after event being shuttled around and then just parachuting in uh, from the outside to do the other types of stories. And so I would say that we're also losing something by not being able to see the candidate in action in the way that we used to. And all I can you know, conclude at the end of the day is that this is a multidimensional approach that we have set up with our, our 2020 team. And, and because of that, we will hit at different angles and different ways of getting at a story because we set ourselves up in such a dynamic way. I don't want to end this on a micro story, but uh, but it's too intriguing for me not to ask. As of this moment, recording this Wednesday morning, there is a what I'm assuming is a temporary story about the fact that Kamala Harris has gone 42 days or 43 days without taking questions from the press, yeah. and it's a Twitter story. And then they're full of Twitter responses of her saying doing interviews on CNN or ABC. This seems like a campaign trail story that is of interest to basically five people. But do you understand that story? And does it tell us anything about sort of the state of campaigning in 2020? You know, I saw that, I was actually surprised that it's been 42 days and she hasn't done. Like, but what, it, honestly, what, what, like, what is the argument? Because she's clearly speaking to people in public. Is it the idea that she's not speaking to the, the press card that's traveling with her? I mean, it's the whole like Obama went weeks and weeks and months without doing a press mm -hmm. conference, we would write a story and then he'd do a press conference. Like, and they'd be like, but we did 50 other interviews with all these people. Be like, but you didn't talk to the White House press corps. You are failing. You know, like, mm -hmm. it's a little bit of the same genre. Yeah. But I have to stand by it. Like facing the press, being peppered with questions that you're not necessarily prepared to answer. Now I'm not saying like these, obviously these interviews are, are, are similar examples of that, but it is a different form yeah. that she has not put herself in front of. And I think it's totally legit to call her out on that. And I was surprised to see it was 42 days. And like, there will be a spate of stories now written about it. And she'll appear in front of the press probably within the next few days or so weeks. So you think this is just like, what will happen? And she, and you can't, and you can't say, look, that the idea that I'm supposed mm -hmm. to like break free from the whatever event I'm doing and gather 20 of you in the back of the bus or the plane or auditorium, wherever we are, and have my formal press conference, that that's not necessary. And we don't need to do that anymore. And that's a trapping of campaigning that we can move on without. Um, and by the way, when when does Mike Pence done one of these? You think, nope, she's eventually just going to bow to convention and some things still have to happen the way they're supposed to happen. I believe so, yes. Okay. <laughs> Carrie Budaf Brown, um, I'm glad we had this conversation. I'm glad you took the time. Thank you, and, and good luck with the rest of the year. Yeah, thank you, Peter. Great okay. to be here. Thanks, Carrie. Thanks again to Carrie Budaf Brown. She really is busy, so I really do appreciate her time. Thanks again to Jelani and Joel for producing and editing this show. Thanks again to our sponsors who bring this show to you for free. This is Recode Media. We are in the home stretch of a crazy year. We'll be back next week.